Alright guys, welcome back. This is Nick. And this is Faye. And this is... Creogs Over, over coffee. coffee. So today's subject is going to be genital herpes. We're going to be continuing on our STI saga. Get excited. So for learning objectives for today... Number one, we'll talk about the pathophysiology of genital herpes and describe its appearance on physical exam. Next, we'll talk about treating the initial genital herpes outbreaks, talk about treating secondary outbreaks, and also talk about indications for suppression. We'll then talk about how to counsel patients on disease transmission and prevention of transmission. And then very briefly, we'll touch on perinatal transmission. So, Faye, what is genital herpes? Uh, well, so genital herpes is a sexually transmitted infection. It's caused by two different strains of viruses called HSV-1 and HSV-2, which stand for herpes simplex virus. Most people think that HSV-1 only causes oral herpes, which usually manifests as oral ulcers or cold sores colloquially, and that HSV-2 can only cause genital herpes. And while it is true that HSV-1 is more prevalent in oral herpes, both strains can actually cause both types of herpes. Now, genital herpes is common. It affects up to one in six people between the ages of 18 and 49, and it's spread through contact or exchange of bodily fluids. So this can be through vaginal, anal, or oral sex. However, it's not true that you can get it from things like toilet seats or towels or like swimming in pools with people that have herpes. Nick, can you take us back to medical school and tell us a little bit more about the herpes virus and how it works? Yeah, I wish that I didn't have to, but we'll give it a try here. So again, herpes is a virus. It is one of those linear double-stranded DNA genome viruses. Herpes has the ability to attach to a bunch of different cells. And amongst those different cells includes cells in the nervous system. So it has what we call neurovirulence. Again, that neurovirulence just simply is the capacity to invade and replicate in nervous cells. It's a virus as well that by being able to invade and replicate in the nervous system, it also can maintain a latent infection there. In oral herpes, this tends to be in the trigeminal ganglia or cranial nerd 5 for all you nerds out there. And in genital herpes, this usually manifests in the sacral nerve root ganglia, or S2 to S5. Now, over time, HSV has the ability to reactivate from this latent phase, and usually this gets brought on by some sort of stressor. These stressors can be things like fever or trauma, or could be something like menses, or could be emotional distress. Many different triggers, but there can subsequently be an overt or covert reoccurrence of the infection and shedding of HSV. Um, as it travels down these nerve roots. So they usually, with a primary outbreak or the occurrence, there's some sort of sign or symptom. What do we usually see? Yeah, so in terms of signs and symptoms, first symptoms that patients will experience and people have, you know, who have long-standing genital herpes may start to recognize these symptoms are things like tingling or itchiness in the area where the outbreak is about to occur. Those who have an initial outbreak can also experience flu-like symptoms, so they may have things like low-grade fevers, chills, swollen lymph nodes, and some may even report upper respiratory symptoms like feeling congested. 
After this, herpes can manifest as open sores on the labia or the penis that are painful and swollen, and this can lead to discharge that appears white, yellow, or green. And this can be very different. Some people can have just a single sore, some people may not have any sores, and other people will have multiple sores bilaterally that take a week or more to heal, and this can be very, very uncomfortable. So Nick, what about treatment? First, again, is just the diagnosis, as you described, Faye. And I feel like what you have to say is that seeing is believing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times we see this in our emergency room or patients who come into our clinic with really almost a complaint of like bad vaginitis. Yeah. And patients who tend to present to care with symptoms are usually the ones that have these more impressive outbreaks. Right. But herpes can be imitating or look like a lot of other things as well, especially as you said, like this has a lot of different looks just at baseline. Right. Um, So in terms of other differentials, there's something called Bichette's syndrome that is actually a non-infectious vasculitis that's characterized by ocular lesions and orogenital aphthous ulcers. These ulcers can also show up in other organs across the skin. Um, And there are also manifestations that can occur in the central nervous system, the GI tract, or the joints. Additional options to think of are a lot of the other things that we've been talking about in our STI saga, like chancroid or Mm. syphilis. Um, Remember, though, that syphilis tends to be a painless chancre as the initial sign. Right. And then other diseases that can cause a similar appearance can be vaginal candidiasis, hand, foot, and mouth disease caused by a Coxsackie virus, Mm. or herpes zoster shingles. So that said, you got to keep a broad differential. But again, most of the time, seeing is believing with this. What do we do if we think we see it, Faye? So the first thing you should do is test for it. Because even though these tests may not come back before you decide to treat the patient, you do want to have it documented that the patient does have HSV. So when the patient presents, if they have an open lesion after examination, you should send off some kind of diagnostic test after doing a swab of those open lesions. We're going to talk about three of them. So things that are available would be like an HSV DNA PCR, an HSV culture, or um, the HSV blood test or serologic testing. In our emergency room, we usually send off the HSV DNA PCR from the open lesion if that's possible. This is because it's usually faster, around 24 to 48 hours, while the culture can take up to seven days. Also, culture sensitivity is pretty low, especially if it's not the initial outbreak but a recurrent lesion. And also, the uh, cultures are going to decline rapidly as the lesions begin to heal over, meaning that the shedding of the virus is going to be lower than that initial outbreak. And finally, the last thing is serologic testing. And this sometimes may not be as helpful because if it is an initial outbreak, sometimes those IgG antibodies uh, may not show up or it may just tell you that if someone has been exposed, but it doesn't tell you if they're currently having an outbreak. Let's say we see someone, you suspect genital herpes, you've tested them, you sent off your PCR or culture or serologic testing or whatever it is you did. What do I do now? How do I how do I treat herpes? Yeah, so treatment depends on whether again we're talking about an initial outbreak, an episodic outbreak or a recurrence or if we're talking about suppressive therapy. Let's start with initial genital herpes outbreaks. Okay. Um per the CDC, there are multiple different regimens that are acceptable. There's a cyclovir 400 milligrams TID for 7 to 10 days. You can also do 200 milligrams at five times a day dosing for seven to 10 days. 
There's Valtrex or Valacyclovir, one gram twice daily for seven to 10 days. Or you can do Famcyclovir, 250 milligrams TID for seven to 10 days. Really, the best choice of therapy is the one that the patient's insurance is going to pay for. And of course, we will be posting this to our website. So don't worry if you didn't catch all of those. Faye, what about suppressive therapy? So for suppression, you know, this is for people who have multiple outbreaks or who come in with an initial outbreak. I usually start them with their initial treatment and then put them on suppression. So things that I like to use are acyclovir 400 milligrams twice a day or valacyclovir 500 milligrams once a day. Um, And then there are other options that the CDC mentions that we won't necessarily mention today. What about recurrence? If someone comes in and they say, you know, I know that I have herpes and this is my fifth outbreak, how would you treat them, Nick? A lot of times with these patients, they know their symptoms pretty well. And so you can usually jump right on it if they're starting to get that aura of that tingling or burning even before the first lesions get there. You should instruct your patients who have known HSV to call the office and say, hey, I think I'm getting an outbreak. There are, again, lots and lots of different regimens for being able to treat recurrence um, that we'll all post on our website. And again, it's the same three drugs, the acyclovir, valacyclovir, or famcyclovir, with regimens as little as once a day with valacyclovir a gram daily, the acyclovir three times a day for five days at a 400 milligram dose. Or you can do famcyclovir, a gram BID, just for one day. So there's, again, many, many different options for episodic therapy. And a lot of it depends on what's worked for your patient in the past and, again, what's covered. And an important thing to counsel your patient on is that the medication may not work immediately, especially if they're coming in with several days of symptoms. Because remember, these medications, these antivirals are going to essentially stop the herpes from replicating, but it's they may continue to have symptoms. It's really only when they um, are just starting to show signs and symptoms that, the, um, that these medications may cut their outbreak uh, short. Absolutely. It's good to remember that, Faye. So speaking of counseling patients regarding their diagnosis, Nick, what do you tell patients, you know, if they come in and they have their first herpes outbreak? Yeah, so a lot of times with these first outbreaks, the goal is really to, number one, help the patient understand and cope with the diagnosis, especially if it's a surprise to the patient. And then secondly, to educate them on herpes simplex and how to prevent sexual and perinatal transmission. So you kind of start out, again, with a natural history of the disease. Again, you got to talk with the patient to say that, and this is a sexually transmitted disease that can't be cured, but can be treated. Talk with them about the facts that episodes can occur beyond this initial episode, and the patient may also have at times asymptomatic viral shedding. Um, So it's something that they should be open with their partner or partners about. Sexual transmission, again, is more likely HSV2 than HSV1, but can be either of the viruses, as we talked about earlier. Right. In terms of things that the patient should know when they leave the office, they should know to be abstinent from sexual intercourse when there are definite lesions or prodromal symptoms. Mm -hmm. The effectiveness of suppressive therapy and the use of episodic therapy to shorten recurrences should be explained. The use of barrier methods, even in the absence of symptoms, to again prevent transmission even in that asymptomatic viral shedding period. And then possible serologic testing of the sexual partner to determine if they are affected or unaffected. 
Lastly, if the patient is considering pregnancy, um, we discuss neonatal transmission. Faye, what do you talk about with pregnancy or concern for neonatal transmission? One thing I tell patients is that patients with known genital herpes in the past or new diagnosis during pregnancy should be placed on suppressive therapy at 36 weeks, either using acyclovir 400 milligrams three times a day or valacyclovir 500 milligrams VID. And this is because the risk of transmission to the neonate from an infected mother is quite high, about 30 to 50% um, among women who acquire genital herpes near the time of delivery. However, it is quite low, less than 1% among women with the prenatal history of recurrent herpes or who acquire genital herpes during the first half of pregnancy. The reason we care so much is that the neonate can actually be affected by herpes, and this tends to be a much more serious infection than just the lesions on the genitalia that we see in um, adults. So neonatal herpes can lead to similar skin and mucus membrane lesions as in adults, but this can be much more serious. Um, It can also lead to disseminated disease and it can affect the CNS, things like HSV meningitis or encephalitis, all of which can be very devastating. So I want to make sure that patients understand that they can transmit this to their neonate and that it can be a very, very serious infection. So every woman who has a known history of HSV at our hospital, we tend to screen them at the time of presentation for rupture of membranes or for labor by doing an an external exam as well as an internal exam with a speculum to see if there are any uh, occult cervical lesions that we can see. And again, we place them on suppressive therapy at 36 weeks to try and minimize their outbreak um, at around the time of delivery. Great. So Faye, I think that about wraps up herpes. Let's let's summarize. Yeah. So at the beginning of the podcast, we talked about what herpes was. It's a sexually transmitted infection caused by two different strains of virus called herpes simplex 1 and herpes simplex 2. We reviewed that herpes is a linear double-stranded DNA virus that has the ability to attach to a lot of different things, but in particular, it can maintain a latent infection in nerve cell ganglia, which allows it to be latent and then reactivate later on. Signs and symptoms of genital herpes can vary between patients, but usually uh, the initial outbreak can be associated with flu-like symptoms, including fevers, chills, swollen lymph nodes. Outbreaks can have a prodrome of tingling or itchiness around the area, which can then lead to painful uh, ulcers. The differential diagnosis with somebody who's presenting with lesions is quite broad, so seeing is believing, and if you do think that you see herpes, you should test it either with DNA PCR, culture, or again, if needed, you can do serologic testing. And of course, we talked about treating herpes, and there are multiple ways to treat it. There are The treatment options are different for an initial outbreak, for suppression therapy, and for recurrence. Finally, we talked about counseling and education for patients, again, reviewing the fact that patients should be aware of the natural history of the disease, to be abstinent from sex when they are having symptoms, use barrier methods to prevent transmission, be open with their partner about the diagnosis, and then finally a discussion about neonatal transmission if a pregnancy is present or planned. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogzor Coffee. And remember, (laughs) there's no cure for herpes, but it can be treated.
So guys, if you liked what we had to say on the podcast today, give us a five-star rating on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, whatever your podcatcher is. You can find us on social media on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, our website www.creogsovercoffee.com, on Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, and our newest feature, our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee, where you can show us some love by donating money to us every month for some pretty cool swag. And if you got any new ideas for the show or things that you think that need to be corrected or adjusted, please email Faye and I at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com or reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, the website, wherever. And if you think your patient has ocular herpes, you can also go on Apple iTunes or any other podcatcher and find our favorite ophthalmology OCAPS board review podcast called Eyes for Ears. And you can find them on Twitter at eyes, the number four, ears.